Hi, this is Karen. I'm back here today with Glenn, and we're, we're in episode two of our series on what is life. And I'm just delighted to have Glenn here. And uh, Glenn had an idea about how he wanted to approach our time this morning. So I'm just going to give it to you, Glenn, and we'll see what happens. Well, I've been struggling um, a lot to, to put together a lecture, quote unquote, on entropy and information and a lot of these topics. And I gave up. And then I had a, a wonderful um, inspiration when I saw your video a couple of days ago with Mary, and you were talking about the creative process of art. And I thought that would be um, a very good place to start. And uh, instead of um, a lecture, I thought I could go back to when I was a TA grad student and teaching physics. And I often, or more often than not, ended up doing the, the lower division physics labs. And it was a great opportunity because I'd have two hours one-on-one uh, -on -one with a lot of students. And so I could sit and get a conversation going and try and find out where they're coming from, what their majors were, their experience, and try and recast the physics um, in words or terms that they could grasp and then make ownership of. So I'm thinking of, I'm imagining our conversation today is, is I'm your TA and you're my student. And we're kind of one-on-one -on -one work our some of these concepts and uh, then your audience is just uh, spectators watching watching us try and work our way through. That sounds amazing because I, I can be a sponge. <laughs> okay so one of the first things I picked up on when you were um, talking about your art is the various components. I think you mentioned seven um, elements like line, shape, size, Mm -hmm. uh, well, one good way to explain a lot of these concepts in thermodynamics, like information, entropy, complexity, order, is imagine them as elements in your, your art, that they all have to work together as definitions, as concepts to get the final big picture um, working. And I think you also mentioned that sometimes uh, the best way to understand or grasp something is to start with a big picture and then work your way down to the details, how the pieces fit together. Mm -hmm. And I imagine a puzzle sometimes that if you're just looking at the pieces of a puzzle and trying to fit them together, sometimes it doesn't work. But if you step back and you try and imagine the whole picture, all of a sudden you realize, oh, there's a piece missing. That's why things aren't fitting. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're gonna try and do today with thermodynamics is figure out what the missing pieces are that will help you put everything back together again in a, in a sensible way. So, um, well, I think I'll just start okay. with the concept of um, complexity and order. Okay. And so take a look at the definitions and as you weigh these definitions against each other and how we use them, you'll find or you'll notice that they don't always fit. And then sometimes I wonder if that's what you mean by anomaly when you run across something that doesn't quite work and it, it draws your attention in. So we use complexity and order in odd ways that sometimes end up not fitting. So if you look at a crystalline solid, we say that's highly ordered and we'll say it's a low complexity. If you look at a, a random gas molecules in a box, we say that's disordered, but highly complex. Then we'll look at a, a machine, a large hadron collider, a human being, 
we'll say they're complex, but we'll also say they're very ordered. And so we use order in sometimes two different ways. So that's one place I wanted to sort of focus on is how we use the words mm -hmm. and start with the definition of complexity or at least one of them is as a measure is you create a simulation of whatever it is you're trying to measure. And then the complexity is how many lines in that is there does have to go into that program to completely describe or simulate what it is you're looking at. So it's very easy to simulate a crystal and solid. You just have a few lines that tell you where the atoms go and then uh, just a loop that just repeats. Whereas to describe random atoms in a box, gas molecules, you pretty much have to just list everything. So the complexity gets very long. But then when you look at- I think One of the things I was thinking about that I, when I was thinking about information entropy, the picture that I've had for a long time, and, and it may be wrong, but if it, you know, so you need to tell me, is that the the more entropy there is, the more information there is, because the more disordered something is, or the more um, the more possible states that there are, mm -hmm. the more information is required to describe it. Is that okay. correct? Uh, we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> we, we, the, that's people have so confused the words information and entropy use them interchangeably and that we've lost the distinction that they're actually two different things. So if you look at the watch example, I was thinking of, you know, the classic, the complexity measure is, is how is a description, basically blueprints or whatever you would, you would generate for the watch. Well, whether the watch is working or it's a pile of pieces on the, on the table, the complexity measure is the same. So when we're using the term order, we must be referring something different. And that is in the functioning of the watch. And then we get back to boundaries. And every time you're dealing with thermodynamics, there's always a boundary. There's always an inside and an outside. And again, I think a lot of the popular expositions on the subject leave out that crucial qualitative thing. And so when we speak of complexity of a watch and we're talking to the, the parts and pieces, but when we use the word order sometimes, what we're referring to is the functioning. It's how you interact with the watch now. Once the watch is assembled, it becomes, it has a border now, it's a substance. And how you interact with that watch is through the hands. The big hand says hours, you know, the middle hand says minutes and the, the other hand says seconds. And so a description now of how you interact with that watch, it's very simple again. So then the complexity drops as a measure of how you interact with it. And I think sometimes that's how the we're using- The complexity decreases based on how you interact with it. Is that what you said? Yes, if you wanna write a simulation on how you interact with the watch. That gets very simple all of a sudden. It's just a handful of long, some kind of um, qualitative barrier has been crossed when you stop just looking at all the pieces inside and then step back and just look at the watch as a functioning unit. All of a sudden now it becomes simple again. And I think that's how we often use the word order um, 
reflecting how we interact with things. Is that something that they teach you when you're studying physics or is that something that you just thought about? Well, it's, yeah, it's, <clears throat> it's like 50 years of thinking about this stuff, how I would explain it to myself, how I would give a lecture. Um, that's one of the things I often do. It's a, it's a very good help to try and understand things. You just do your homework. Is imagine you're at the chalkboard and you're trying to explain it to somebody else. And if it doesn't make sense to you, then it's not gonna make sense to someone else. So you put the pieces together. And this is what I've known or noticed all through my time is the subjects are taught like textbook. Here's the definition, here's how the, we solve, but here's the homework problems. And so you get all of these concepts um, defined and used separately. Mm -hmm. But nowhere in physics do they actually lump them all together and then force you to try and make sense of, of, out of them as, you, as a set of design principles like for your art. Mm -hmm. And that's why I chose the, um, the question, the origins of life. Originally not that I'm proposing that we have a solution, but that is one of the situations where all of these concepts will come together. And then in order to understand the origin of life from a physics side, you're gonna to have to deal with all of the different concepts and make them fit. And I think in that process, it will force you to come to a deeper understanding of, of the parts and pieces when you see how they have to work together. And so that's the route I've been on for quite a few years, trying to understand Maxwell's demon and make sense out of that. Okay, before we go, before we go there, because that's a, that's a, that's a yeah. in itself, right? I wanna clarify a couple of things that, that I'm not sure that I understand. You're talking about complexity and order Mm -hmm. And you're using a watch as an example. And when the watch is working or whether, whether the watch is um, a pile of pieces because someone has taken it apart to fix it, in both cases, the complexity is the same. But um, in this sense, complexity then is something different than chaos. Yes. Okay. So yes. how would you differentiate complexity and chaos? Chaos in physics has a very definite definition. Mm -hmm. And chaotic systems are perfectly deterministic. You can write down a differential equation that describes their motion um, exactly. It's just you can't predict There's where something's going to be in the future. Um, whatever precision you uh, start out with, if you're trying to do a, a number, a numerical answer, uh, the error explodes exponentially as time goes on. And very shortly, you end up not being able to predict anywhere where the object is, but it is still deterministic. But then an interesting thing happens to chaotic systems. <laughs> when you say deterministic and then you say you can't know the future, it's like, wait, what? You can't predict the future. And so sometimes again, here's a, a hint. When we use the word no, we often, we're talking about us. And so we're, we're, we're really meaning we can't predict. Physics knows what the future, well, I don't know. Does the, does the universe know what's gonna do next? But- Physics says it can predict. Physics says it knows, but in this case, it can't predict. And would this be the same principle? Last night I was watching uh, Stephen Wolf from 
video about, it was the Royal Institute video about his um, computational, mm -hmm. um, his, his little simple programs, what are they called? Um, cellular automaton. And how some of these cellular automaton that he's found can, they start out as a very, very simple program, but they produce so much, I think he used the word complexity, that there, there's no way that you can predict where it's going to go in the future. You would just have to let the whole program run. And then mm -hmm. even if it took millions of years, you'd have to let the whole program run and in order to see where it goes. So is that a chaotic system or is that? No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's what we refer to as emergence. And that's not not chaos. Okay. Um, so emergence so is that's, that's, complexity nor chaos. That's that's two or three conversations down the road. Okay. So, so I won't I won't tie the two together then. I'll. Okay. Be a good girl. Um, deterministic means that the next step or the next position of the particle or the next state of the system is completely determined by its current state. So if you know its current state, it's, you know, a double pendulum, if you know the velocity and position of the two pendulums, at any moment, you can predict exactly in a, a small neighborhood of time where the next position is going to be. Non-deterministic behavior means that the next step is not determined by the current state exactly. And that's, that gets us into the, term, the definition of what choice is but I want to wait on that one. Okay. We go, well, let's work on the basics first. So the, the thing I wanted to bring out was you start with the just simple definitions, how you use words, um, complexity and order. And then you realize if you play around with them that sometimes you're using these words in different ways. You know, a crystal is ordered and that's pretty boring, but the, a watch is ordered, but it's pretty complex. And so oftentimes what you're doing is, like I say, you're referring to how you interact with it. And how you interact with it always implies a boundary. And so the boundary separates the inside complexity from the outside, how you interact with it. And all of a sudden it becomes simple again. So is, is this making sense? Yes, it is. Um, but but all the time you're talking, questions come up in my mind. And, and the question that came up in my mind just now is that a crystal is very ordered, but um, and a watch is a crystal is very ordered, but not complex. A watch is very ordered, but complex. And it depends on if you're inside the watch or you're outside. Yeah, yeah. But is the difference that the watch was designed and the crystal was not? I mean, that the that the crystal is a natural phenomenon and the watch is a has has intelligence applied to it. Is that is there or are there examples of natural things that also fit that paradigm of very ordered but very complex? I do not think so. And so, like the the intelligent design people will say, well, the watch had to have been intelligently crafted because look, 
what they're responding to is the fact that even though it's a complex um, mechanical system, all of a sudden there's an order to it in how you interact. That's what I think you're picking up on when you say something is intelligent, you're picking up on there's something else going on. The, the relationships between the pieces become what you're interacting with. And so I'm not sure I can help any farther, but well, there's an inside and outside good, and good once you need to work on. Yeah, you're involved in it. I think that's the thing. When you use the term order, your perceptions is involved. It's not a strict physics definition. There's no, so you're experiencing something and you need to, to grapple with that, I guess, to um, one of the things that I like about anomalies, or I guess if I'm using the word as you do, is that they tend to pull you in to the subject. Mm -hmm. um, so if you, if you wanna go on a journey of discovery, you can't go as a tourist. If you're gonna go someplace, if you wanna visit a town, you go live there. So if you wanna understand a physics concept, you have to grab a hold of it and let it pull you in. And some of these questions like this, I think are, are the kind of questions that will pull you in as you wrestle with it and try and debate back and forth with yourself and compare how you think about it with other ways that you think about stuff. It pulls you in. So that this ties, question. That ties into some really big, big principles that, that we're working with on my channel. One of them is beauty. One of them is desire. And just this morning, I heard Paul, have, I heard a video that Paul did where he was talking about hard lines and grimy lines. Mm -hmm. Now, it's in a completely different context. But when he was talking, it made me think about lines in art and how artists through the ages have used lines mainly, well, they've used lines in many ways, but, but um, edges, the edge between one thing and another or the edge between the object and the background, that edge, artists have used that edge as a way to lead the eye to the focal point to the thing that they want you to focus on the thing that they want to draw your eye mm -hmm. and so they'll make all the edges a little bit fuzzy except the edges around the focal point and the edges that will lead your eye through the painting here and there to get you to the focal point and that's exactly what I hear you talking about mm -hmm. that these these little unanswered questions um, create this curiosity and 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 I think this fits in I, I'm going to throw this in here even though we haven't gotten here yet but I think this fits in with our big question about what is life and I think that it has something to do with this idea of the phase transition which is a term, I mean, the way I'm using the terminology is when it comes out of self-organized criticality, and I don't know what you think about that or don't think about that, but, but I was thinking about, um, well, let me just play you this little clip of a video that talks about what I was thinking about. So it'll simplify matters because it's only like a minute long. Um, I'm gonna plug it in here, share screen.
and we'll go to the same idea that there's something about limitation or anomaly that forces you to adapt that increases your potential and that is exactly what the way I see phase transition. I got I got to go back just a couple, just maybe a minute here to that thing. And so it's always about. Yet, I, what I really want to talk about is the phase transitions in the development of a child. Okay, so when my daughter was a baby, like six months old, maybe, and she first started getting really interested in something that was across the room. She wanted that thing, but she couldn't get that thing because she couldn't get there. In fact, she couldn't get there because she couldn't even roll over by herself. You know, I, I don't know what, at what age that was, but at some age she had to learn to roll herself over and she would practice until she got that dialed in because she had a purpose, right? She wanted that thing. Later, she learned to crawl because she wanted that thing. She needed to get to it. And every one of these things is a phase transition. The learning to walk, standing up so that you can get over to that thing. And so it's always about that thing that you want, that desire. But there's something in the way and that's your limitation, right? So limitation, constraint, boundary, all of these things are, in the, in the artistic way of thinking, those are all what forces creativity. So creativity grows out of constraint. Yes. I mean, we, we have lots of cliches. Necessity is the mother of invention. <laughs> um, Chloe Valdry puts it, uh, your disadvantage is your superpower. So they all relate to the same idea that there's something about limitation or anomaly that forces you to adapt that increases your potential. I'm gonna stop there. And uh, so I think that fits in at this spot is maybe as a placeholder for when we get to what is the nature of life from non-life? And I think that anomaly fits in there somehow in a big way. I think so too. Um, but we've got a lot of physics to cover before we get there. And, <laughs> okay. But that clip reminded me of, of something I wanted to say the first time. And the, you mentioned that our email started when I was asking you about machine learning. Mm -hmm. And my interest for a long time has been agricultural robotics, as opposed to, you know, the floor mounted factory robots. Once you go out in the field, you know, whether it's farms or construction, logging, mining, your robot doesn't have anything fixed. The ground changes, the work situation changes. If you're harvesting crops from one plant to the next, things change. So you have to come up with some kind of programming paradigm that allows the robot to constantly readjust itself to the changing circumstances around it. So you have to add this extra layer of awareness to the, the programming, which I've always found kind of 
an interesting aspect to machine learning. And what you're talking about anomaly caught my attention in that regards. But so much for that uh, little detour. Um, okay, so we were on complexity and order. And mm -hmm. the last thing that you said in reference to that was that um, the complexity decreases once you cross the boundary of when you begin to interact with the watch. Because mm -hmm. the qualitative boundary has been crossed there. You're interacting with the relationships between the pieces. Yes, that's a, a constant idea that you'll come back with, especially with emergence, is that after a certain point, you're not dealing with the inside. The, you're just dealing with the outside, the boundary of whatever the system is. And once that happens, your interaction becomes greatly simplified. So that was one, one of the points I was hoping to get focused and get people to think about uh, the, this notion. And then the, the second place I wanted to start um, is this notion of entropy versus information. And I've often found, well, one of my pet peeves is that they use the words interchangeably and, and they're not. And by doing so, you, you uh, miss the fact that there's a puzzle piece missing to this whole thermodynamic debate. Entropy from the outside of a thermodynamic system is just a measure of the, the energy lost that you cannot get available work from. Now, how you get work out of a thermodynamic system depends on the situation you're putting in. So the chemists will talk about Gibbs free energy because that happens, I think, at constant temperature and constant pressure. There's uh, Helmholtz, Helmholtz free energy. Another thing called enthalpy, which I see used a lot in, in hydraulics and uh, fluid flow. But that is, this form of entropy is, is independent of what goes on inside the system. Once you're inside the box and you're looking at the molecules or the atoms bouncing around, then you notice that you can count the number of states, the possible arrangements that these molecules in terms of speed and, and direction can fit. And the, the statistical mechanical approach to understanding um, gas dynamics has been so utterly completely exact. And um, so, it, the, our definition of entropy is a purely physical one. It doesn't involve us. You can define it mathematically. Um, it's an inside view of what's going on. And because it's um, such a good description, perfect description of how you experience the box from the outside, we've come to conclude that entropy is counting states. And I think that's a mistake that needs to be undone. I'm not. Not sure it's it's wrong so much as it's sloppy, uh, because when when you do that you miss the boundary. Now when we talk about information, this is where it gets interesting. Um, Usually, maybe you have to slow down a little bit on this thing that you just said because um, I'm sure that most people understand it better than I did, but they're but but <laughs> you're saying that. The, the definition where they say entropy is the number of possible states, that the measure of entropy is the number of possible states. Mm -hmm. That is definitely one definition of entropy that I've heard before. And you're saying that that definition is 
incomplete. I, I've also heard a couple of other definitions of entropy that have helped me. Well, can, can I just read something that I wrote this morning? So that yes, go tell ahead. Me, tell me where the holes are in this, okay? Because the question that I asked you about entropy was when there is a ball at the top of a hill and the ball has a lot of potential energy, but what is the state of entropy and what happens? And you gave me a, a wonderful uh, description of that. Part of which was that when, is, when the ball is at equilibrium, the potential for energy is zero. The gradient of the potential for energy is zero, correct? Mm -hmm. um, and then you said when the ball goes down the hill, if, if something perturbs the ball and the ball begins to move and it rolls down the hill, if there's no friction at all, there's no loss of energy and therefore uh, there's no increase in entropy. But if the ball hits an obstacle on the way down, all of the energy, like if it hits a tree, all of the energy will be dissipated and that energy will no longer be available for work. And that is what entropy is, is the energy that's no longer available for work. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, I had this question. So when something is at stable equilibrium without an outside source of significant perturbation, both the potential energy and the potential entropy are zero. Is that right? Mm, say that again. <laughs> <laughs> when something is at stable equilibrium without an outside source of perturbation, it's just at stable and equilibrium it's sitting there. There's nothing gonna bother it, okay? Both the potential energy and the potential entropy are zero. Mm, I would say no, it's, it's a thermodynamic system, the box. What are, what are we looking at? And so if we have a, how about a, an example of a roller coaster where it's sitting at the peak, the top, and it starts rolling down and as long as the roller coaster is frictionless, your car will just keep going forever. Mm -hmm. In that sense, the, the box, your thermodynamic system is the roller coaster, the frame, the air, the whole environment. You just put a dome over this roller coaster. Now that's your, your thermodynamic system. Now, if the roller coaster just keeps going forever, the entropy of the system doesn't change. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, if you try and use that roller coaster's energy somehow to harness it to work, you know, like a little water wheel or every time it goes by, it, it hits a lever and pushes something, mm -hmm. it will gradually slow down. Right. Now, what happens to that work? Now, somewhere there's going to be some friction, there's going to be heat loss. That's when the entropy starts to go up mm -hmm. inside your box. So if the roller coaster goes down and crashes, all of the energy now is lost to random motion, heat, uh, sound, noise, and, and inside your box, now your entropy has gone up. Mm. Now, okay, so, so that's when, when your thermodynamic system is inside a box. Now, one of the things Julian Barber talks about is that 
up till this point, all measures of entropy, all, all the theories of entropy have been established based on all these particles being in a box. Mm -hmm. and the universe is not a box. Nope. So, so let me continue here. The entropy of the universe increases when energy is dissipated. That's one of the things you said. Okay. And when the ball hits an obstacle on the way down, all of the energy is dissipated and all of the energy is all of the energy is lost to entropy. That's what you said. Okay. So anomalies, this thing it hits on the way down. This is my thing, causes free energy, which is that energy which is available for work to be turned into entropy, which is energy that is no longer available for work. Yes. Right so far? Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then order has been lost to chaos. Complexity. Or order has been lost to disorder. At the disorder, very okay. Yeah, I like that one better. So organized energy has been lost to disorganized energy. Okay. Okay. But what if striking the tree results in a transfer of another kind of energy to the tree? Because when the, the, the train car hits the tree, if, it, if it's not in a, if the whole system isn't in a, well, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of outside the frame here, but let's say it hits the tree, all, all of the energy that's in the car gets dissipated, so it's no longer available for work, but a golden apple falls out of the tree. So something new has been introduced into the system by the, because the anomaly, because the motion hit the anomaly, something new has been introduced. Or let's say the tree gets so badly damaged when the car hits it, with the transfer of energy so badly damages the tree that now the tree falls over and it becomes available for beavers to build their dams out of. Mm -hmm. It's not a total loss of energy. There's still no. energy that's going to do work. Yeah, yeah, so it's not perfect. That's why it's sometimes a little bit, sometimes none, some, you know, sometimes all of the energy gets converted to entropy. So there's no hard and fast rule on, on that process. Okay, well, I had, anyway, I'm sort, sort of on the right track. Yes. Thanks. You're going to have to wrestle with this one. You know, even as a physics major, I would spend weeks and sometimes months pounding my head on concepts before they started to make sense. Now, well, let's move on. Okay, now this is the key part, and this is where I think most of your videos and everything you've heard gets it wrong. And I included uh, John Wheeler's. Uh, paper is a link where he discusses his concept of it from bit so that I'm people don't think I'm making up stuff new on my own I'm, I'm going straight from the master himself on this one we talk about Shannon entropy or Shannon information mm -hmm. and that's um, has to do with uh, communications mm -hmm. and we talk about bits information being bits one uh, comment I've seen is one of the worst things to happen to physics was that Shannon's work on communications theory got labeled as information because it's led to a lot of confusion. 
So I will go back to Wheeler. A bit is not a one or a zero. It's not something electronic. A bit is a yes or no answer to a question. So when you're dealing with Shannon's entropy or information, it's a communications process. You have a transmitter at one end that has a list of questions it can ask about the system. And it goes through this list and it answers each question, yes or no. That becomes the bit, the one or zero you transmit. At the other end, there's a receiver with the, the same list. And as the bits come through, yes or no, it checks those boxes. And so that's how communication of information goes, is by a checklist. So what Shannon's in, uh, entropy or information is measuring is the number of questions unique that you can ask about the system that generate yes or no answers. It's not, and so a lot of physicists have spent their careers looking for ones and zeros, especially if you get into the co cosmology, holographic principle, black hole entropy world. Um, there's no ones and zeros out there, which sometimes I wonder if that's what people actually think. Those are true, false, yes, no answers to questions. So before you can have information, you have to have somebody or something asking questions. And that becomes uh, essentially a measurement. The question is a measurement on the system that generates a yes or no true false result. That's so, so beautiful. I wish that somebody had explained that to me a long time ago because there's all these beautiful things in, um, well, for example, in music, I was watching a, a video on music theory the other day because my daughter's very interested in music theory, so I want to be able to talk to her about it. And he was explaining that the way music is composed, it always starts with a question and an answer. Mm -hmm. uh, I know who it was that was talking. It was Hans Zimmer, the guy that did the, the score for Interstellar and a number of other very popular mm -hmm. movies. And, and many people just love the movies because they love the music so much. But he says it always, you always start with a question and then an answer. Yep. And that sometimes the answer will make the next question slightly different, a little bit of variation so that the next answer is deeper and richer. And, mm -hmm. and this is in the whole piece of music goes through that way. And I thought, wow, I listen to music in a whole different way now because I understand this idea about the question and the answer. And, and it should have been obvious to me because that's, of course, the way it works with art. But the way I do my art, my question is not usually so well defined. My question is usually, well, what if? Because <laughs> my brain thinks a different way. But anyway. <laughs> so keep so, going. Okay, so, well, this, you know, once you play with that idea, the, it tells you that when you're using the word information, somewhere out there is some conscious aware entity making these measurements. And then this is what you, uh, this is where we come to Maxwell's demon. And uh, the term usually refers, it's, it's demon in the sense, I think the, the ancient Greeks would use it as, as a divine activity, divine inspiration. Uh, it didn't have the connotation, the negative that we have today. It's just something 
out outside the normal universe that's interacting uh, with the universe. So the Maxwell's demon is interacting with the thermodynamic system. It's making decisions and then it's making choices. It's extracting information from its environment. Now this is where it gets, I don't know, fuzzy, where to get information is, hmm, entropy can just be defined as counting states. It doesn't involve you, but when you start saying information, that means there's an entity looking at the system and asking it questions. And then out of the patterns it sees, it gets yes or no answers. So, uh, Information is not necessarily a position. It could be a configuration. It could be a lot of things. And based on that information, that measurement, then the demon makes choices. And, but before you get a choice, there's usually some kind of decision process. There's a if, else, then kind of sequence you go through. You make more than one measurement. You balance things. And at the end of this decision tree, based on true-false measurements, you act back on the system. And that's why we, I think, use the term agent. Agency is to mean have the ability to act back on the system. Now, at the end of this process of the true-false going through some logic steps, you end up with a final true or false answer as to what the action is going to be. That is a choice. So I've gotten flack before for how I use the word choice, but that's the physics um, version of it. So now I've completely lost you. So let's. No, 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 no. I'm I'm totally tracking with you because I've watched a lot of videos on Maxwell's demon, and I and I thought about it a lot. Yeah, and they they always they miss that point. And I think as as a Christian, I think doing physics, I don't have to worry about a lot of things. It's sort of like it frees me up. I don't need physics or science to be my faith. Yeah. I can just let my faith be and I can enjoy physics and let it be what it wants to be. But I think a lot of people who do physics, especially ones who are more on the atheist side, they're kind of afraid of what it might tell them if they dove deep enough. And so a lot of subjects are just avoided. They're like the third rail of thermodynamics that no one touches is this question of. Who is this observer? Who is this agent that's making measurements, creating the ones and zeros out of the questions it's asking? Well, and you so, get in. So let me ask you though about Maxwell's demon. Is Maxwell's demon just a theoretical construct? And, and here's why I'm asking. Here's why I'm asking because I mean, is it really a thing or is it a theoretical construct? Because when when Maxwell's demon, Maxwell's demon looks at the particles and determines which ones are moving slowly and which ones are moving quickly and mm -hmm. and either opens or closes the door based on how letting letting let's let's say it's going to let all the slow ones into a certain one side so that all the fast mm -hmm. ones are on the other side so in the process of doing that it has decreased entropy and the big question in my mind is, <clears throat> a lot of big questions. In order to do this, the demon is, the demon has 
some way to process information when it Correct. looks at it. Yes. Um, otherwise, it wouldn't be able to open or close the door. It's, it's looking at that information. It's processing it somehow. But then something else is happening, I think, and that is that that as it's make as it makes each choice to open or close the door, now there's different information. So there's actually an increase of information in the system, which I think is increasing the information that the demon has which means that the demon is learning as it goes. Or it, maybe it's not learning, but it, it's increasing in information. So if I think of it as a, if I think of it as a. Information is energy storage. Information is energy storage. Okay, unpack that for me. Well, once you have the fast molecules on one side and the slow ones on the other, you can use that temperature differential or pressure differential to do run a heat engine and do and get get work out of the system. Okay, so, so you're, you're you're making avail you're you're making some available energy out of the unavailable energy, which is right. what it means to decrease entropy. Mm -hmm. And it does it by making it by the choices it makes. So one of the things that's always driven me for all these years is where is the demon? You know, is it something outside the laws of physics? You know, is it some spirit or, you know, disembodied spirit? Well, then physics doesn't cover it. The only way that you can deal with Maxwell's demon in terms of physics is if it's a physical entity. The, and it's governed by the laws of physics. And so the final solution to Maxwell's demon question has to include the demon into the whole situation. And no one has really ever done that. And it's one of those quests I've been on for decades, looking for a paper or looking for uh, someone who's actually tried to include the demon. And Landauer it came the closest. I think his, his work is, is the start, but not the finish which some people claim. Oh, now I feel like we've really gone far afield. So I'm, let me catch my breath. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I, we're right in my wheelhouse right now because this is the thing I've been trying to work out. So I, I hope you can keep going for a little while. <laughs> so I've often thought if you can figure out the physics behind the Maxwell's demon, okay. then you'd have your hint, you'd have your first benchtop proof of principle experiment on where the origins of life came from. Because that's how life works. It, makes, it looks at the world around, it gathers information about things in its environment. And on the choices it makes, it can extract energy from its environment. And then it can use that energy to sustain itself and create new order, you know, um, reproduce, so to speak. So Maxwell's demon is not the origin of life, but it's like I said, it's the first step. If you can't get that working, then you, you can't get anything else working. And if you get that far, then self-reproduction is a solved problem. Um, and I think I might've mentioned there's a whole field called artificial life 
they, they run uh, simulations in software on different um, living you know, organisms and stuff. And it's, it's a great way to understand population dynamics, but the field has, they've never been able to generate some kind of spontaneous evolution. And as a result, it's, it's a pretty stagnant field. It never really went anywhere, but they did work out the details of self-reproduction. So if you can get a Maxwell's demon working, then you can get the self-reproduction going. And then after that, I don't know what. As a physicist, I have no idea. The, let, me, uh, I have let, no... Throw, let me throw an idea in here that may or may not clarify your thinking about Maxwell's demon. <clears throat> When I think about the nature of life, um, this is this is the whole big idea collapsed down to a very small idea right now. So it's it's going to be completely imperfect. It has to be capable of learning. Mm -hmm. Okay, and learning. And Jordan Peterson helped me see this. Learning means you have to let something of yourself die to make room for the new thing that comes mm -hmm. in. So there's this continually dying and re being reborn on the grand scale of the archetypal thing. But yeah. on, the, on the very small scale, it's opening up a space inside for something else to come in. So, so if you have two, this is a completely stupid example because I don't know any chemistry or biology or anything else, but mm -hmm. let's say I have two uh, very simple objects sitting next to each other, a rock and a drop of water or something like that. They're sitting next to each other. The, um, The rock will change if the water has an impact on the rock, but the impact that the water is going to have on the rock is going to, in one sense, degrade what the rock is mm -hmm. and the rock will become something else. So any sort of learning requires that kind of a thing where you're impacted by what you are coming up against, mm -hmm. which is the same principle of every time we come up against an anomaly in life, whether it's a small anomaly like stumbling over a rock or it's a big anomaly like a worldwide pandemic that affects mm -hmm. the whole world. When you come up against that, if you're willing to give way inside for some of that pain and uh, struggle to enter in, and then you will become something new. You will gain something new out of it, right? And right. I think this works all the way down to the very smallest thing that life cannot happen in a non-organic thing unless somehow it opens up to another thing. Mm -hmm. In other words, they're gonna end up like this. Yes. Uh, which is, yeah, evolution, even at um, the fundamental physics level, requires some goal orientation. That, that, is, that is the odd thing. 
why would why would a simple Maxwell's demon evolve into a biological life form? I have no answer for that one. But I, I like what you're trying to say about anomalies um, and the growth. I often think of the the, the Zen Buddhist uh, concept of a koan. It's oftentimes as uh, the sound of one hand clapping, but Cohen's that I discovered later in life are actually questions or even stories. Uh, the parables in the in the New Testament would, would qualify as as Cohen's in the Zen Buddha sense. And there, there are things that you think about that are questions that don't necessarily have an answer. And in the process of trying to answer those questions, or you go deeper and deeper into the subject. So your example of the water on the rock. The, the rock has to take that on as a discipline to let the water keep hitting it until it changes. And my phrase in my years in physics was that you go pound your head on the wall for the next week or two and then all of a sudden one day it makes sense. There's this, this notion that if you wanna understand or learn or grow, you've gotta go confront and sometimes it's not pleasant. There's, there's a change. Mm-hmm. Is, is that working for you? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Well, see, all of these things, that's this, I think this is the very peculiar thing about life, is that you can take some principle that's down at the very smallest particle level, and it builds all the way up to the biggest psychological thing that you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And it also works on a planetary-wide and universe-wide, and these same principles are governing everything. And, and they're not just physics, they're, they're also, I mean, the spiritual principles, there's all these overlaps, which is mm-hmm. like very, very strange. So I have to tell you, we, in, in another conversation that I have going on with these three guys, um, we've been talking about this book, Radical Orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And after our last conversation, one of the guys sent me a Voxer. A Voxer is, Voxer is a new app where you can just push a button and you can talk and then the other person can listen to it on the other end whenever they want to. Mm-hmm. Kind of a nice app. He started talking about another one of Mary's ideas, one of her videos, where she's thinking about a fifth kind of knowing. John Bervakey has posited these four kinds of knowing, and I'm sure I'll forget one of them. Mm-hmm. Perspectival, procedural, um, and now I've forgotten two of them. There's four ways of knowing. Oh, participatory. Mm-hmm. When, when you know, like when you're riding a bike, you know how to ride a bike because you, you're doing it. That's the only way you can learn to do it. So there's, there's four kinds of knowing like that. But Mary says there's a fifth kind, parabolic. And she doesn't mean mathematically parabolic. She means parables. These little stories, these little... Mm-hmm. And I think of them kind of like, a, like I've, I've thought for a long time and Michael, I think Michael was the one that introduced me to this idea that a story is a data compression algorithm because a story contains all of this, not only what's in the story, but the potential of the story to colonize you, to change you, mm-hmm. to you know change history, all of that is all contained in this story. Well, so this parabolic knowledge, the, the parables that Jesus told the Zen Cohen, that's a kind of parabolic knowledge. It occurred to me, you know, I've talked before about this chiasm thing that everything mm-hmm. has to go through the center. 
in the cross that like an X, you have to go through yeah. the center and that center is the place of suffering. It's the place where your life narrows down to the smallest that it can be because of some pain or suffering or struggle or mental agony or something. But once you get through that spot, then your life starts to broaden out again. Well, that, that center spot right there, that's your story. Mm-hmm. And story occupies that spot. And I think you can't get from any one kind of knowledge to the other kind of knowledge without going through the story because the story, the only reason to tell a story is because there's an anomaly involved. If it's just, I went to the store today, who cares? Mm-hmm. I got from here to there. No, on the going from here to there, my car got hit or on the going from here to there, I ran into an old friend who told me, you know, something has to come in between in order to make it a story. And, and I think that's also a big part of this thing we're looking at. But anyway, I'm getting us off track. Let's go back to where we were. Life looks at the world around and creates new order. And we were on Maxwell's demon. So. Well, I'm comfortable. I, I think this is <laughs> this is enough to keep a lot of people wondering for the next few uh, week or two. You think uh, this is a good place to stop? <laughs> yeah, I, I could comment a, 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 a little bit more, but. I think it's important if listeners want to keep going is, is to get the get this idea of boundaries inside and outside. Okay. That some of our terms as we use them imply an observer, an, an agent, somebody, something outside the, the physical system that information implies an observer. You get into this really big in quantum mechanics because quantum mechanics is all about what happens when you measure something. And so, all quantum mechanical um, questions evolve around who's the measurer, who's who's the observer, and how does the observer act with it? Mm-hmm. And so that gets into the realm of uh, choice. And so if you have, you can have a free choice or our choice is choices bound. Like I said, in, in the Maxwell's demon situation, you take input information, you generate yes or no answers, those yes or no true false go through some kind of logic pattern, decision pattern, which generates a true false, which then initiates an action back on the system. Well, that last action is what I refer to as the choice. Now, is it free or is it bound? Is, is that choice determined by the past history of the universe? Or is it free in the sense that it can be made thick, that there's no, it's not uniquely determined by the past history of the universe. So when you get into quantum mechanics, especially in the questions of entanglement of particles, and you have your observers, Alice and Bob, you have to assume that their choice is free. Otherwise the physics doesn't work, which means they get to choose what experiment they're gonna do independent of the past history of the universe. And so you, I have no, Simple way to go at that one, but that's a talk for another day. Hopefully that just made sense. Yes, yes, yes. Because I remember we talked about Alice and Bob before. I'm not sure everybody else will remember that, but they can go back and (laughs) listen to our previous conversation. Um, It looks to me as though we have uh, 
the next topic that we would be looking at then, are we gonna continue with information and the difference between information and entropy or do you wanna continue with how Maxwell's demon must be a physical thing or what, what do you wanna do for next steps? Oh, we could talk about what is science. What is science? Okay. Yeah, I think. Uh, want to recommend that um, video the, of Feynman's so that people yes, can get definitely. booted up for next time? Tell mm -hmm. them a little bit about that. But it, I want to sort of tie in because it's, it's what you just mentioned and that, and it ties back to Nima's um, when approach to the capital T truth. You, um, at some point, if you want to approach the T truth, you've got to let go of uh, your give you dirty. And I think that's what you're just talking about when you approach okay, anomaly. Hold on just a second. My husband just drove out. So the garage door interfered with the Wi-Fi. Okay. So, so we missed what you said. <laughs> capital from Capital T Truth from Nima Arkani. Right. There's a certain way you have to approach it if you want to do it right. And part of that, you have to let go of a lot of um, the things that you believe are true or things that give you security. And you talked about how to grow or learn, you have to let go of something. You have to um, let things teach you. And there's a moment, a period of time where you become very vulnerable as you're learning, immersing yourself. And that's an easy time for someone to um, take advantage of you, to deceive you, give you false information. So that's why Nima made that point is, you have to be ruthlessly judgmental about people who aren't dedicated to the truth when you're in the, um, the enterprise of physics. Because one person who's willing to do say something for their own career benefit, they can mess everything up. So there's a certain moral discipline you should have if you're going to approach science. And I've often thought, while the church has no place speaking about science, it certainly seems to have a place in speaking to the, the integrity of the scientific in inquiry process. That when you're approaching the truth, you sometimes are very vulnerable as you're going from an old um, truth to a new one. And so there, um, there's a certain integrity of the process, a morality to the process. And I think the church has never ever spoken to that. And I think that's one of the issues uh, we're having in society today, that uh, truth has, has been left to float around and let it be whatever anybody wants it to be. Anyway, that's my um, dead inside road for the day. Okay, so the what is science? So there really should be two videos that they watch then. One would be the Nima Arkani Hamed one on the morality of physics. And the other one would be um, Feynman's. Feynman's on uh, cult, cult science. Yeah, cargo cult science. And then I'm thinking in terms of talking about Galileo, the history of, of science, how it's, how, we're, um, how, it's not, how it's taught and how, it, how we're taught science is so different than how we're taught art or music, things like that. And, um, Does that come from that Pierre Duhem? Book that you Pierre Duhaime is one. Uh, it starts with Thomas Kuhn. Okay. Uh, Pierre Duhaime fills in all the missing pieces that Thomas Kuhn doesn't actually get to. Okay. Um, yeah, that would be a fascinating lecture. I man, I'd pay for that one. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> science isn't what most people seem to think it is. So, and I think that's one of the, the challenges in the science versus religion debate is um, the Christians are there should be to start with. Anyway. Can we do this next week on Friday again? Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. All I right. To it. Okay. Three coming up. Okay. Thank you Thanks. for today. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thank you.